Everyone wants information to be free, but if you have information now, you're responsible for its use, which again gets into ethics, how you use that, you know, how you use the, the power and whatnot. Welcome to Steamcast, where STEM and the arts collide. I'm your host, Dan Costello, and together we're going to have conversations with the brightest lights and rising stars in the fields of science, technology, engineering, the arts, and math. Exploring the world that we live in, the science that makes it all possible, and the art that makes it interesting. This is episode 15, the first part of a multi-part conversation with research scientist Nathan McDonald, where we discuss statements and predictions of the future that were given to us in 2017 from futurist Dr. Michio Kaku. In this episode, we discuss the future and ethics of nanotech, biotech, and artificial intelligence, getting into Asimov's three rules of robotics, the math of Harry Seldon's psychohistory in the Foundation series, and we culminate in a good long talk about ethics in nanotech, biotech, and AI. Well, the future can be explained by looking at the past. If you take a look at previous revolutions, uh, the first big revolution was the Industrial Revolution, energized by steam power. The second revolution was the Electric Revolution, which gave us television, radio, telecommunications. The third revolution is computers. Then if you want to know the future, you have to understand the fourth wave, the fourth revolution. Okay. The fourth revolution will be artificial intelligence, nanotech, biotech. In other words, science at the molecular level, mm -hmm. that's going to be the future. That's going to be the engine of prosperity, right. wealth. The engine of the future will be these three things, artificial intelligence, nanotechnology, and biotechnology. So, Michio Kaku is talking that in order to understand the future, you need to first understand the past. I don't think there's really any argument for that. You need to know where you came from. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you risk, as people have said before, learn from history or you're doomed to repeat it. Or as Battlestar Galactica said, all of this has happened before and all of it will happen again. You're giving me the face that you did not watch the 2005 Battlestar no. Galactica series. Nathan, we have to add another thing to your Netflix queue. All right. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's wonderful it is really wonderful so let's go into what he talked about for the revolutions you have the industrial revolution computers but what he's talking about the fourth wave ai nanotech biotech he just briefly mentions them that this is what's coming mm -hmm. uh but what does all of that mean? So for AI, are we going to get some super intelligent artificial intelligence that feels, as we see in nearly every version of science fiction, that at some point it needs to take over and take us out? Destroy humanity and all that fun stuff. Yeah, or at the very least enslave humanity. And humani In order to preserve humanity, it needs to control humanity, maybe. <laughs> well, that's what communism was for, right? Yeah. <laughs> So uh, AI, so uh, actually been doing a, a bit of research on AI ethics uh, right now. There's, uh, you're, you're coming off of the, the Google and Facebook and Amazon. Everyone's got all these uh, artificial intelligence algorithms and how do they use them? So there uh, a lot of governing agencies are saying we need some sort of rules, regulations, policies. How do we go about, um, how do we 
ensure that these technologies are used in an ethical manner. Um, yeah, I'm going off on a tangent. That's not where I want to go with this. I, I, I loved what you said on that. <laughs> communism. So, so Comrade Siri is com- Comrade Siri and Comrade uh, Alexa are are they going to be benign or are they going to be uh, very aggressive? And is it and if they are aggressive, is it going to be out of their own self interest and, and self um, and perceived self preservation because you know they learned from their parents us and humans are nothing if not a bit aggressive and overly um, self defensive, uh, or is it going to be just a better version, a better widget than what they are now? Let's take it to the Star Trek computers. They're they're hyper intelligent, but they are not self aware. So that they can do everything you need them to do, work, do trillions of calculations in a second. But there's little to no danger of them taking over and destroying everything. So right now, there are two flavors of AI very, very broadly. You're going to have ones that are supervised and some that are uh, unsupervised. So with the supervised uh, machine learning, which is primarily what you're seeing with the Facebook and, and uh, Amazon, um, you're giving it a bunch of data and saying, make sense of it. And predict, uh, you know, if, if uh, given these parameters, what is the person most likely to do? And by the way, we want, them, we want the customer to do X, Y, and Z. So it's really tethered. It can't determine how to train itself. It is, it is if anything, it'll just become a really, really good widget. Where people are are more concerned, or the the futurists are uh, will, will wax eloquently on, is the unsupervised learning, where the the machine has to teach itself, has to uh, uh, figure out what it needs to do. Now, it isn't just given um, a blank slate. You're giving it a goal. You are telling it you have done a good job when you score X on the Super Mario game. Okay, or if you uh, for for the uh, world exploring robots, the longer you don't die, the better you're doing, and so it redoes the simulation over and over and over again. It's those sorts of of machine learning algorithms that people are really trying to figure out: is a is that a good way to do it? Do we want to give them a goal? And in what ways are, is that going to cause uh, unforeseen problems? I mean, go all the way back to Asimov with his three robotic rules. Everyone loves to quote them, but how many people have read the book to realize that the whole book is about why those are bad rules? Or having goals ex- explicitly stated, even in a hierarchy, causes all sorts of unintended consequences. And while science fiction loves the mad scientists, it's usually more uh, who's Zuckerberg, the, the unintended... Not unintended idiot, but but unaware of the consequences and then caught by surprise and now don't know what to do with it. So I think that there is little danger of Mark Zuckerberg listening to this podcast, but Mark Zuckerberg, you have been called the unintended idiot. Just putting that out there. <laughs> <laughs> now, speaking of Asimov's three rules of robotics, sure. though, in no particular order, a robot must never cause harm to a human being. Yep. Um, uh, a robot cannot, through inaction, allow a human being to come to harm, and a robot must preserve its own life unless it interferes with the first or second rule. Correct. If you read the entire series, though, the entire 
um, iRobot series, but then also the Foundation series, towards the end, they start to intersect. And there is a zeroth rule. You must protect humanity. That the main robot from the iRobot series, mm-hmm. um, R. Daniel Olivaugh, I am a nerd. <laughs> it's not just Star Trek and Battlestar Galactica here. It is um, Isaac Asimov Foundation and iRobot and all that. So R. Daniel Olivaugh created the zeroth rule. You must preserve humanity. And he was a little bit of a strong hand, but it would always be an invisible hand. So okay. he would put, um, he would put effect he would put events into motion. Um, give this person a little nudge. Give that person an idea, and try to act as a mentor, as a guide, occasionally as an adversary, in order to try to keep events, keep humanity moving forever forward. And not backward. And it wasn't always successful, but he found ways of keeping it better more often than not. So Mm. Uh, the three rules, um, you're saying that people love to quote them, but they don't go into the books and see how they're bad. So how are those rules bad? I'd have had to prepare better for this. The robot shall not allow harm to come to itself. A robot shall... So a robot shall... uh, So a robot shall uh, not allow harm to come to itself unless that... uh, interferes with protecting humanity, or robot shall do nothing to, uh, shall not do anything uh, to harm a human, unless that were to interfe- um, interfere with something um, bigger and be- better. Um, a ro- so basically, through inaction mm-hmm. or action, a robot cannot harm humans or humanity. And if those aren't being uh, in conflict, a robot shall allow no harm to come to itself. So self-preservation. How are those things bad? I didn't read the book. <laughs> you didn't read it. So no. you are you are here. I you to... are here saying you are here saying that everyone loves to quote the three rules of robotics. Yes, but no one bothers to read the books and understand that they're bad. And you didn't read the book. Oh. No, but I know that they're bad. <laughs> Oh, we're going into this. We're diving deep. I can't know everything. So I've got lots of friends that do read all these things. And I sit and chat with them so that I know, so that I can sit and string things together. See, so we're actually, where I was going to go with this is pull back to uh, uh, the gent at the end who was nudging everyone. That's really, I see as more of the concern than, than you know, robots running amok is he's doing all the nudging. What's his ethical system? Yes. When Google nudges, when Amazon nudges, when the federal government decides to nudge, what are the, in Amazon or Facebook's or Google's case, they want, they're capitalists. They want you to buy things or they want to encourage or discourage particular social behavior that they deem. Are there, as part of uh, the, especially the EU guidelines of AI, they're very big on making the human aware of when they're being nudged. Is they think that that is a, a fun they say it's a fundamental right, and we can argue about that. But it is very, very important that the human understands how they might be coerced by artificial intelligence systems in their interactions. That they always be aware when they are interacting with an AI system. Because um, there are plenty of, of AI uh, voice uh, systems that are really, really good. Yeah. Um, and so if you weren't aware that you were talking to an AI, you might behave in a different manner or be more easily swayed than if you knew you were talking to a robot in, in doing certain behaviors. Uh, those are the things that, that I'm 
much more interested in and and and, and key up a, a lot more so i'm far more concerned about how humans use into artificial intelligence than the ai taking over and, and enslaving me okay so in the case of our daniel i'm not going to let this go <laughs> In the case, I did read Foundation. Okay, the right. trilogy. All right. So in the case, so Harry Seldon and his predictions of everything for twenty thousand years—it was a ridiculous amount of, amount of time. Being a psycho historian, and it's all through math. Which, just so you know, uh, ladies and gentlemen, if the founder of the Project Fibonacci Foundation, Andy Drozd, is listening to this episode, and Andy, I hope you are. It's all about the math with him. It's not just how do science, technology, engineering, and arts all mm-hmm. interact. It's how they interact through a common math. If you didn't read the Foundation novels, this isn't even a Reader's Digest version. This is just a, a premise of it. The future is predicted through one historian, a psycho-historian, Harry Seldon, who was originally a mathematician, and he uses mathematical modeling in chaos theory all coming in together and then I think he uses quantum numbers at some point I forget but it, it that's not important he uses mathematical modeling to predict the future not what individuals will do because individuals as he says are impossible to predict but what trends and mobs of people will do and he's really accurate for some ridiculous span of time. Like we were saying like 20,000 years. Scarily accurate. It's scarily accurate. And he can predict the rise of individuals, just not who they are. But then sends in recordings so that at the critical juncture when a decision has to be made, his recording comes from the dead and says, and gives some obscure piece of advice that the right person will be able to decipher and then make a you know key decision to change. And then... They're really accurate for the first, like, 15 of them, and then they start getting increasingly weird. <laughs> A little bit. But the overall large macro predictions still hold true. It just, it's it's fun reading. Go in. Asimov was probably the single greatest writer of any genre in the 20th century. He didn't just write science fiction. He wrote science oh, yeah. books. He wrote philosophical treatises. He did uh, a reader's guide to Shakespeare. Did he? Yes. Oh my goodness. Asimov's guide to Shakespeare doesn't look at it from the theatrical context, okay. but from the historical context. What Ooh. does this line, this character is saying mean in the context of the period that the character exists in, mm-hmm. but also in the period that it's being written? So he's looking at all of the historical contexts something that a lot of readers guides don't get into and well, yeah. it's really fascinating but we're we're off topic <laughs> again oh my gosh uh, but so ai your your overall final summation where you think it's going oh that's my research so i think it's really fascinating um, i'm particularly interested in in artificial intelligence for size weight and power uh, limited uh, systems so uh, cell phones drones that kind of thing how nature's how a dragonfly thinks is fundamentally different than how an F-35 thinks, and that's fascinating. Yeah, um, I forget, have I done the dragonfly analogy on, on this talk before? Uh, you know, even even if you have, let's do it again. Okay, so we, we like saying this all the time. So think of an F-35 fighter. It has a handful of high-definition sensors. Okay. To process the information fast enough, we put uh, twin supercomputers on this aircraft running millions of lines of code. The, uh, the, the plane is so complicated, the human has to have the computer to fly it. Okay. Now, take the, think of a dragonfly. It's got 
thousands of very crude sensors. It's got a compound eye, you know, height, H, or, uh, HDMI nothing, okay? It's covered in hairs. It's got hairs even on its wings, which is fascinating. Um, we talk about it having the, the computing power of a toaster for a brain. Okay, very crude brain, processing information from thousands of very crude uh, sensors. However, dragonflies are nature's dogfighters. They eat other flying insects, just, you know, aerial acrobatics, pull them straight out of the air. How nature does processing for aerial flight dynamics, all that stuff, is fundamentally different from how the F-35 works. That's fascinating. And it's not, uh, their brains are so, con are so uh, uh, crude, they don't even use spikes. It's all analog computing. So how, at some point, we like all these high-definition sensors. Does that prevent us from putting intelligence in a smaller, smaller package? Because we want all this information that humans uh, use to interact with the world, but you don't actually need for a system to interact with its world effectively. So if you, let's say, dumb down the F-35, for the sake of argument, mm -hmm. if you're able to dumb it down so that it is such a specialized piece of equipment that it can then, would it be potential to maneuver it like a dragonfly if it was, if the computer on board was tasked with that and that only. It's not telling you anything Possibly. else. Possibly. You, you'd need to learn, or there, there's a lot we still need to know about our brains. A uh, really cool sensor um, that people are really excited about is a uh, DVS camera. I think it's a discrete video signal camera, I think what it is. And all it does is it spikes at every pixel when there's a change in uh, luminosity, in a change in the light and degree of light. So it's, it's really, it's kind of an edge detector, but it's fascinating. You can't, there's no motion blur. So that's a big thing with color cameras and whatnot mm -hmm. is if you get something going fast enough, you get motion blur. There's zero motion blur. You get those fidget spinners, you can sit and watch it spin. If you watch a, a quad rotor and you can see the propellers individually spin. Oh, that's neat. It doesn't have to, it doesn't have a problem with the, uh, uh, what do you call it, the saturation, the light saturation. So you can watch a dragonfly fly in front of the sun. Oh, Nobody's neat. ever been able to do that before. And what, and what is this again? It's a DVS camera. So they're under $10,000. So they're new Oh, so on it's the a bargain. It's a bargain. <laughs> it's, it's really, really cool. You can do some. Um, so people are really interested in for um, navigation. So suddenly you can, uh, you now don't have to deal with uh, sensor saturation. You can see where the edges of roads are and things like that. So if you want your robot to navigate in an environment, you can... Uh, um, target tracking, you just need to, to make the image disappear, essentially because then it's keeping up with it. If you see movement, then you're then uh, uh, then it's moving with respect to you. So which means that now you have to jiggle the camera slightly to, uh, to uh, um, I'm not explaining that well. Because it's a different kind of sensor, all the rules of video uh, motion processing that we've been working on for the past 50, 100 years are all out the window. And now we need new algorithms and new developments. So people are really, really excited about this. This is where the research community is, is uh, going right now. So that, that is neat. So. As a as a layperson coming into it, I would say, just personally, my thought that for the whole AI, is it ethical? It, it depends purely upon who's programming it. Mm -hmm. And also, in the case of, let's say, AI that could potentially teach itself and uh, build new AI, again, what was the original AI's intention and purpose? So if you program in, let's say, the three laws of robotics, saying you're not going to allow a human to come to harm through action or inaction and then protect yourself unless it means allowing 
a human to come to harm. So unless it interferes with the first or second rule. And if you add a zeroth rule of humanity, mm-hmm. maybe, but then that might also be how we get Skynet. I, I don't know. Oh, you recognize the Skynet reference. I do recognize the Skynet. I haven't seen Terminator, though. (laughs) Well, at least you're up to date enough on on 40-year-old pop culture reference right there. I did just finish rereading 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. So, you know, I hadn't read that and I reread that finally. And that that was a lot of fun. Okay. I I really enjoyed it. So if I I were to mention The Architect and The Matrix, would you get that reference? Yes, I would. I would, actually. All right. right. We're going to pause for a moment and pay some bills. As you might know, the 4th Annual Project Fibonacci STEAM Leadership Conference is coming up from July 28th to August 3rd, a week-long annual event for students entering 10th grade in high school through their junior year in college or university. Focusing on immersive, hands-on, interdisciplinary, team-based, and project-based learning in the STEAM fields, science, technology, engineering, the arts, and math, Project Fibonacci STEAM scholars receive access to lectures and workshops taught by some of the brightest luminaries of the day, who have included astrophysicist Dr. Brian Green, science communicator Alan Alda, astronauts Alan Bean, Chris Hadfield, and Jeanette Epps, entrepreneur Damon John, physicist Dr. Michio Kaku. And the 2019 speaker series includes aerospace engineers Robert Zubrin and Dr. April Erickson, mathematician and former NFL player John Urschel, and science communicator Science Bob Plugfelder. STEAM scholars go on exclusive tours of top facilities, which have included the Air Force Research Lab, the Munson Williams Proctor Art Institute, Worthington Industries Steel Rolling Manufacturing, Fort Stanwix National Historic Site, SUNY Polytechnic's Nanotech Facility, and the Masonic Medical Research Institute. Students are encouraged to find the common math that underlies all of the disciplines to find common ground among them and to use arts and music to foster creativity in the sciences. For more information and to register, go to projectfibonacci.org. Scholarships are available. Sign up today. So, all right, so I'll jump ahead to the, the biotech. Yeah, nano and biotech. Because there, there's, again, I'm big on ethics. There, there, there are a couple things. Again, it's the proliferation. We have the technology, and because technology is always decreasing in price and decreasing in, uh, uh, increasing in ease of use, who gets to play with it and then what rules and regs uh, come into play? Okay. So the, the AI is – I'll go back to the AI – you're coming off of a culture of information wants to be free. Now, which is, you know, Napster and, and uh, internet piracy, all that fun stuff. Now, the, the corollary that nobody talks about is, in, in, in my line of work we, we have to deal with all the time, is information bears responsibility. Everyone wants information to be free, but if you have information, now you're responsible for its use, which again gets into ethics, how you use that, you know, how you use the, the power and whatnot. You've got a, a problem now with the, with the culture that the community is trying to realize or figure out is in the AI community, everyone publishes. They share their code. Well, now that we see that there are nefarious uses for AI, do we want to make all this code available and just put it out on the Internet? How does that inhibit or, sta- or how does that uh, uh, hurt the uh, advance of research? Uh, um, at the same time, there was a really cool article last year or earlier this year a researcher found a way to give their AI a prompt and it would come up with a new story or uh, write a uh, write a report or something. And scarily convincing. I mean, it looked mm. like a human wrote it. And they said, we were so impressed that we decided to not make this code available. We published to say, yes, you can do this. So you know that this is possible. We are not making this code available because we don't trust what people are going to do with it. 
Yeah. Now go to, to bio, um, the CRISPR, uh, where you can edit genes. That technology is, is uh, rapidly becoming more accessible. Um, so you don't need a nation state or a university to, to operate these things. Who gets to modify the genes of an, of an, uh, or an organism? Who tracks this? What happens when they let it go in the environment? Uh, there's a big experiment going on right now. I think it's in Africa, but don't quote me, where they've modified mosquitoes. And uh, if I get this correctly, because mosquitoes are different, the XY chromosomes and things like that. But anyway, it gets to the point where they won't be able to reproduce. Hmm. So they've got them all quarantined. They're doing all their research to understand how it's going to propagate. But now if we let them go in the wild... Well, mosquitoes do actually make a, a, you know, a significant portion of a lot of animals' diet. Yeah. And if we change, if we just eliminate mosquitoes, what are the nonlinear consequences that well, we don't anticipate? Bats and dragonflies, for instance. Exactly, and and bats and very important. Exactly. How or or uh, swine flu is decimating. Uh, uh, that is one of the biggest uh, causes of of uh, animal loss in in the United States for in the swine industry. We can modify their genes to, so that they don't uh, they don't have to deal with that. FDA isn't set up to, to handle modified pig DNA like that. Yeah. So that's re, that is preventing people from moving forward in that research. So it's off the cuff, really good, really beneficial, but we don't have the means and and we don't have uh, uh, anything in place to say how do we. What's the what's the boxes you have to check before we say we're okay with this? Uh, at the moment, it's kind of a did the animal die. If it survived, then you know at least it's, it's given us you know something to uh, uh, to work with, uh, and that's especially important because you usually kill animals before their 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 natural end of their life anyway. Yes. So so the longer they live, the the better. Um, those are the things that scientists can't answer. That's a policy decision. That's an ethics decision. That's something that the community or the society has to be able to deal with, and. To be able to properly regulate means they have to properly understand. And so you really do need now more science communicators to be able to say, these are the effects of this. Um, as, a, as a side example, think of the growth hormones in milk. Yeah. Okay. People make, we're making a really big uh, deal about this. Well, how is this affecting? Well, it turns out that humans don't process proteins in, uh, cows process proteins differently than humans. So the, the the growth hormone won't affect humans. That Biologically, you can sit and show all that. It won't affect them. But that is persisted in our culture. So the reports that you we've heard about early onset puberty of... Is not at the... 10-year-olds and 8-year-olds uh, develop... <clears throat> um, not just going through a growth spurt or something, but going through a puberty-style growth spurt where the girls develop, the boys' uh, voices drop. Yep hair in places that you don't want. I mean... The more recent literature suggests that it's not because of the milk. That okay. that, that link, that, that potential causal link is not substantiated. Now, is that research, and this is the little bit of the conspiracy theorist in me at the moment, um, because if there's anybody we can absolutely trust, it's the largest corporations in the world that also get <laughs> um, funding from... Uh, the federal government in terms of subsidies. Um, so <laughs> it's sad, but true. Um, was that research sponsored by them or was it independent agencies or um, it, so independent non-governmental agencies or was it governmental agencies, but someone effectively with no skin in the game? 
The particular study, I read those papers a long time ago, so okay. I don't actually know. All right. But in talking with other biolo biologists, they said similar things. So them not being paid by them, I'm inclined to trust them. But you're, you made the correct call. It's been a while since I looked at that. I cannot tell you. Yeah, that. I mean, it's it's the whole uh, it's the whole trust but verify yep. concept. Yep. Uh, what 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 was the Russian word for that? Um, oh God. Uh, I'm, I'm going Thank you, Glasnost. Okay. Yeah, trust but verify. On that whole topic, though, so of uh, gene um, yeah. editing, there may be a point where humans have to, not even want to, mm -hmm. because, oh, I, I want to live longer. I want to be taller. I want to be taller. I, 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 I want to be a little less bolder. Um, and there's a 90s song in there. But... Um, we're eventually leaving the confines of this planet and going elsewhere. Mars, for instance. Mars is incredibly inhospitable to life as we know it. Yes. And having a human who is genetically modified to be able to deal with it better could be an advantage. So us doing it on our side, we're saying, no, no, we, we can't. We've decided we cannot uh, mess with the human genome. But at what point... Do the humans on Mars become fully their own society and allowed to make that decision for themselves? So I am not a trained biologist. So this is where it's it's going to get murky. Is I don't know what are the limits of human DNA modification in a living human, because you're going to get to consent at some point, and and the child in utero can't can't consent to genetic modification. But also at what point then, let's say it's you and I are doing it for our basic survival, we need to do we need to adjust something. Yeah. Children, not even the next generation, but let's say four generations hence, will start will be theoretically taking on those modifications naturally. Yes. They're born with it and then the body's evolution working the way it does. Um, generation to generation, things start changing. Yep. So at what point, then, does the speciation happen? Do, are they a different branch of humanity? Um, or is it just simply, uh, let's say, or would it be as simple as the modifications that allow humans to survive on Mars or, uh, or any environment, just space humans? On yeah, the, yeah. Like, um, lesser bone density isn't necessarily going to be a, a problem or something. Uh, at what point are they either considered a different species or just, let's say, a different ethnic group? Of whereas you have Sicilians, you have oh, uh -huh. you have Anglo's, mm -hmm. you have you have um, African Americans, you ha I mean you have Hispanics, you have you have um, different um, versions of Asiatic peoples. Um, so, at what point is it a speciation or just a different ethnicity? I mean, I, I'm sorry. I'm throwing so much at you. Right I don't now. know. I don't know. <laughs> uh, I haven't. I haven't thought about things like that. Nathan is not a biologist, by the way. He's a fan. I played one on TV. You know. <laughs> uh, no, I, I. I don't know. I hadn't. Uh, hadn't really thought of that. We uh, are only on the first question, by the way, I, right I now. Half I, hour into this episode, we're only. On what, the first so question what, what I will. What I will mention, though, is I'm not opposed to genetic modification of humans. But again, it always comes back to the why and the, and the ethics of it. And, and 
case in point now, should a doctor perform an elective, when should or should not a doctor perform elective surgery? I don't remember the name of the, the baseball surgery that allows you to pitch better. Okay. If you're perfectly, there was a, 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 and I forget his name, and I'm sure the sports fans will, will correct me, particular pitcher, messed up his arm, got a particular surgery, and pitched even better. Okay. And so they named the surgery after him. Well, now pitchers would volunteer voluntarily undergo this surgery, which is not required to be able to pitch better. Yeah. Or you'll get the uh, the folks with medical condition where they, they feel estranged from their arm. Yes. And they ask their doctor to, to remove the arm. Should a doctor do that? And I would say no. Because, if, you know, again, it goes back to the ethics that, you know, do, first do no harm. So <clears throat> now move the, move the CRISPR argument in. When do we start modifying the genome to prevent certain diseases? And what diseases are on that list and what diseases are not on that list? So, for example, for example schizophrenia and depression uh, are major problems and, and definitely can, can uh, decrease the... Uh, the happiness of one's life, I'll use that loosely. Mm-hmm. However, a lot of the greatest artists in the world have dealt with issues like that. Yes, but there's, as someone who comes from that world, there's also the argument to be made. And, and there's always the argument of, there's well, if I, ta- if, I take, if I take away the depression, am I taking away what created the art? As someone who has been on both sides of that, I would say no. You are not taking away your ability and talent and <clears throat> whatever drives you to make it. You might not get, let's say, Van Gogh's Starry Night, mm-hmm. but you're going to get something else um, equally wonderful from Van Gogh. You're not going to get the scream, but you're going to get something equally wonderful. So the depre- so let's say the depressive um, episode um, art might not happen with as much frequency. But you're still you're not taking away the creative spark. Hmm. That, uh, and I say that as someone who has, as a creative who's dealt with depression and and uh, through um, in my case just simply therapy. I I didn't have to go on um, any um, prescription drugs for yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. But was able to create out of a place of let's call it joy. Sure. And. I mean, not everybody is able to do that, but I would I would argue that it might be it might come to be viewed as simple as a vaccine. And so that that is a societal question that gets into to the ethics question. So I'm not convinced that that's something that that should be should be necessarily treated. All right. Uh, in that in that manner with that with that hammer. Sure. So, and and. Oh, who is it? Uh, Brandy Schillens. She had, uh, I quote her, I've been quoting her quite frequently, STEM, the science, humanities, uh, technology, engineering, and mathematics, because science... Br- Brandy... Schillens? Is that... Brandy Scalacci? Scalacci. Oh, okay. yeah, my sorry. friend Brandy. Hi, Brandy. She's been on this episode, friend of the podcast. Yeah, she has. So, sorry, I, met you, I butchered the name. Not this episode. She's been on the show. Yeah. You do... <clears throat> science and technology doesn't tell you what technology to make, what technology not to make, how to use the technology, and how not to use the technology. So, uh, it, science and engineering won't solve ever, won't solve all our problems. No. And the scientists probably shouldn't write policy either. No, but everything should inform the policy. Yes. And at the same point, the policymakers should not be di- dictating what um, science is being done. Although... 
that has been the case for hundreds of years. As I said, well, and at some point you do you do need some again the guidelines ethics. You do need somebody that's going to say thou shalt not do this, and and that that might that barrier might move from time to time, and I'm okay with that. And would so all these biotech arguments would that generally apply to nano as well? Nanotechnology. <clears throat> So nanotechnology uh, can be used in a couple different ways. Uh, the standard ones, computer technology, yeah. um, and and that's that's kind of its own thing, and that's uh, nobody really complains about that, other than you can get into pollution and things like that. Um, where the the uh, poisoning actually gets really interesting because suddenly you're making these nanoparticles um, that never existed before. Uh, you're you're making matter. When you get to the nanoscale, everything's actually applied chemistry. So things behave very differently. Yes. Then uh, uh, nanoparticles of silicon are very different from sand and, and, and you know, inhaling sand, sand at the beach type thing. So uh, when I used to work in, in uh, the silicon uh, foundries, uh, we took uh, contamination very, very seriously. You had the bunny suits or, or if uh, 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 the emergency lights went on or something, you know, there was uh, contamination. I mean, everyone got out really, really quick. When you, when you look at the history of science, a lot of – they're – Lots of tragic examples where the scientists didn't know what they didn't know and, and ran into trouble. So there is, I would say, nanotechnology has benefited from looking at the failures of science for proper regulation uh, or, or just proper safety measures over the years so that it is actually a pretty well-done, well-regulated, uh, um, secure area of research. Um, Really, you only have to worry about the pollution, and, and that's uh, what people are, are kind of working on. We've got, we work with these uh, uh, chemicals that sit and etch the silicon and eat away things. It's really, really cool uh, how all that works. But now I've got these chemicals that will eat through your hand. Now, now what do we do with them? Uh, or how do we repurpose them or something like that? All right. That's it for this week's episode of Steamcast. My thanks go out to Dr. Michio Kaku for doing the original interview with our media intern Jasmine Milner in 2017, and to Nathan McDonald for having such a robust conversation with me about the ideas put forth by Dr. Kaku. Next week, Nathan and I will be continuing in the Kakuverse with a conversation about the multiverse. Steamcast is a production of the Project Fibonacci Foundation a 501c3 nonprofit educational organization whose mission is to introduce our youth to a culture of interdisciplinary STEAM learning, teaching them to become creative, independent leaders of community resurgence. Make sure your brilliant young people are registered for the fourth annual STEAM Leadership Conference, July 28th to August 3rd, by going to projectfibonacci.org or emailing us at info at projectfibonacci.org. And if you'd like to help us pay the bills, keep the lights on, and assist with scholarships for deserving students to attend the conference, you can click on the donate button on our Facebook page. Steamcast was written, produced, and hosted by me, Dan Kostelik. You can follow me on Twitter at Dan Kostelik. Technical support is by Andrew Berger. The music on the show is by The Live and Breathe from the album Reet. You can find it on iTunes or wherever you listen to music. Please subscribe and rate the show five stars on Apple Podcasts, Google Play Music, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And also follow us on Twitter and Facebook. On Facebook, we can be found at facebook.com slash Project Fibonacci. And on Twitter, we're at ProFibonacci. That's P-R-O-F-I-B-O-N-A-C-C-I. Thanks for listening. Keep moving forward. Full steam ahead.